I don't think any athlete goes into the Olympics wanting <laughs> to destroy their careers. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? It's been a rough week, right? I feel like we keep saying that every week and it just keeps getting worse. I know here in the United States, it's been a really tough week. So the pandemic has had one layer of effect, but last week there was a police killing of an African-American man, and that has led to protests, and uh, some of those protests have gotten out of control, but basically most cities in the United States are under some sort of protest activity, I guess you would say, and it's been, it's been tough. I mean, where, where protests have become violent, uh, it's been hard to see that damage happening, it's, I know like the last couple of days, or no, I would say overnight, the the last round of protests have all been pretty quiet. The, the violence yes. has calmed down, which has really been, to me, I've been happy to see that. But yeah, and I, I'm sure you have too, but I have friends who have had to flee their homes for, say, they're just too close to the violence, mm. mostly in uh, around the Los Angeles area you know, take the kids, take the dog and just drive in the opposite direction, you wow. know, and, and we are just not used to that here. I know lots of countries around the world. We talk about the refugee team all the time. You know, certainly other countries have seen this kind of violence. We're just not used to it. And then on top of lockdown and murder hornets and the fires in Australia, this has probably been the worst year ever <laughs> that we have seen. Right. And we've seen some pretty awful things in, a, in our lifetime. So this has just been a very scary week. And we sort of had a, a, a quick conversation, you know, how were we going to address it? Because it just didn't feel right ignoring it. Right. But it didn't feel right. And not, as we said, in our wheelhouse to, to really discuss this as a political issue. That's not what we do. That's not what we're about. So we're going to talk about the history of political protests in the Olympic movement, which I think is a nice context for what's going on now, because this didn't come out of nowhere. No. And you know who's probably very happy that there are no Olympics this year? Go ahead. T-Bach. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Because the, the other element of this was earlier this year, remember they uh, clarified Rule 50 from the Olympic Charter, which was about protesting because the IOC really wanted to clamp down on that this year and with um there have been several killings in the united states uh by both citizens and police officers of african-american people and it's it's been very un unjust and things have just gotten to a boiling point with the george floyd situation so you can imagine that there would probably be a lot of protests 
at Tokyo 2020 if they were happening next month? Oh, God, I can't even imagine this coming into into that event. I mean, we're so not in a mindset for an Olympics. Right, yeah. Because of all this. I can't even wrap my head around that this is all happening at once. Mm Mm-hmm. So I I actually thought you were going to say that Sky Brown, the skateboarder from Great Britain, is happy there isn't an Olympics because she landed on her head. Right. That was is, a that was a bad accident this week. Oh. Oh. It just you know can can we just have a few days to catch our breath? No, we can't. No. The aliens are coming next week. You heard it here first. <laughs> you know, and what's <laughs> funny is we talked about Rule Fifty. I guess right around the time that the Pan Am Games happened, because there were some protests there and and the IOC immediately came out with new guidelines. And we've always been somewhat ambivalent, I feel like. We've never felt, you know, on the one hand, as Americans, we're both very pro-freedom of speech. And of course, you don't want to limit what people say. But on the other hand, we've talked about, you know, keeping politics out of sport, which you really can't because sport is part of society. And I know for myself, I've gone back and forth saying what's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And now I feel awful about even using that word. How so? In the sense of how can we separate sport from politics, from society, and talk about appropriateness when people are dying and the things that people are protesting are so basic to survival. Yeah, it's basic human rights. And yes, you know, and it's so interesting that the IOC and to affect the USOPC, because last year after the Pan Am Games, uh, the two athletes, uh, Gwen Berry and Ray Simboden, they were both uh, given probation for their actions on the podium. But when you Talk about how, oh, we want athletes to be role models for our children and we want athletes to speak up, but they are speaking up in, oh, how do I say this? Because I had it right there. You know, I see those protests as like, here is where I have the most visibility. You mean on the podium? On the the podium podium is where an athlete has the most visibility because- Gwen Berry is a hammer thrower, and I can tell you that the coverage of hammer throw in the United States may Just a little be, limited. Yeah, little, little. It's not really at the headlines. And so really to get attention to issues that you uh, care about and something as important as this, it, it takes a bold move because the papers are going to go away if you just to stand on the podium and you get your after- competition interview and you get your after medal ceremony interview and then the media moves on right and using that even if you waited and did something in one of those post interview segments they're not going to give you the time because they've got about 30 seconds and then they're going to move on and where is that going to be aired right you know whereas if an certainly for america different countries are different but certainly in the united states if an american wins a gold medal in even the most obscure sport nbc in some fashion shows the podium yes you know and the, they get trotted the, out to talk with mike tarico right 
especially if, if they win early on in the games. When there are not as many stories mm-hmm. or if they're an underdog and we can do a little underdog story or if there's some hook to it, which often these athletes from the smaller sports have some kind of interesting story because what they've had to do to get funding, what they've had to sacrifice, how they got into this obscure quote unquote sport. So you're absolutely right that their window of opportunity to make any kind of statement is very small. Then you have the people who argue back at that saying, why should the athletes make any kind of statement. It's not their place, they're athletes. To which I will say, they're human beings with opinions. And they have a right, when they have an opportunity, to express their opinion. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. That that's protected. But that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's where the interesting part is. Where, what sort of consequences should there be should there be consequences, what do you face? And and we'll look at some of the protests in the Olympic history and talk about that. But I, I think especially with the consequences after the Pan Am Games felt so hypocritical because they had just been lauding, or the USOPC had just been lauding John Carlos and Tommy Smith for their protest right. in 1968. Right. They had just been ad- admitted to the Hall of Fame. They had. Did they receive an apology? I think they did. That I, sort of, I can't remember. Yeah. Some sort of namby pamby, you know, for any injustice you may have suffered in that day. Mm-hmm. And then you turn around and, and, like you said, punish the kids who are doing literally the same thing. Right. For, for the same issue, which is crazy. I know. 50 years later, 100 years later, we're, we're still talking about these athletes protesting racial injustice. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's that's where you get the I feel kind of helpless when you talk about athletes being able to protest because what's right, what's not right, what what should they be able to say? They're given a platform, they're a role model, or they're expected to be role models. You know, do you say I'm an athlete? That's my, I'm not a role model. That's not my job. But we've attached that onto their job as part of their job description. Right. And then we run into the problem of when the athlete says things that we disagree with. So for example, in, I guess it was Rio, Russian athlete, uh, Aliyah Mustafina said she would not compete unless she could compete under the Russian flag. And she would protest any kind of ban to the Russian Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. Now, we recognize that Russia is being banned for pervasive doping issues directly related to competition. But if we're going to let people protest racial injustice in the United States, how you know how are we not hypocritical if we say no russian gymnast you can't protest what you think is important mm-hmm. so we run into the issue of are we then very clearly making a political statement by allowing certain protests and not allowing others good question i think that's one of those freedom of speech things that we as americans inherently feel the that is a inherent right for us Right. And then 
you run in, in into the issue that I'm sure Thomas Bach fears that the Olympics just becomes this one big protest of a million different issues. You lose the focus of the Olympics, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be the competition and the athletes and, and the celebration of achievement in sport. But then you risk muzzling athletes and human rights. And, and one of the things that the IOC has embraced as a spirit of Olympism, a word I despise because I can't say it correctly. <laughs> so, you know, we as Americans tend to be very, um, for lack of a better word, Americanistic. We forget that there are a whole different ways of doing things in other places in the world that mm-hmm. are equally valid. I'm not talking about abuses of human rights or it, that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that being valid, but I am talking about what is considered polite is different in different cultures. Right. You know, you have to walk that tightrope. So I understand why the IOC gets this wrong so often, because it's not as simple as what we think is the right thing, because you have to go, you have to lead that to its, its logical conclusion, you know, the, the infamous slippery slope mm-hmm. and where that goes. And on the flip side, I'm going to stand here and be like, you absolutely should not punish these people for expressing their opinions. But then we get into what happens when it's, you know, like in, in Sochi, when it's Russian athletes who want to protest the fact that gay people are allowed to compete. Right. You, you flip it around very quickly, you know, and all the protests against women being allowed or different minorities in different cultures being. Or the um, intersex, the, the are, you a fo- are you a female question. Yes. I mean, this gets very messy very quickly. So for an, an international bureaucratic organization of the IOC's complexity to get this right, would be impossible from everybody's perspective. Mm-hmm. Nobody, they're never going to come up with a decision that's right for everybody because there are people who are diametrically opposed. Yes. So you, can't, you can't please everybody. They just have to look at the long arc of history and hope they get it as right as they could at the time. Right. And it's, it's interesting. You just kind of think, well, maybe the IOC could funnel money to more more money to different programs. I mean, they can say they've got the refugee program or they're working on women's equality, which is a long, slow process. But at the same time, I mean, talk to NOCs and, and figure out what can the NOCs do directly on the ground? What issues do they face? Because it's, I think this is more at a, at a national committee level than something that the IOC can totally fix. But I agree. at the same time, the IOC also should not be touting, tr- trotting out pl- politics when they feel it's convenient, like yes. the North Korea, South Korea thing, where the IOC feels very much like they have played an important part in those two countries communicating with each other and doing things at the Olympics together. So, you know, if if politics and sport aren't going to mix, the IOC has to take themselves out of the equation, too, which they can't because they set up this nationalistic event. Right. You you can't just trot out politics. And I think that's the perfect expression of it when it's convenient or just the happy side. Yes. You know, Thomas Bach posing with the two leaders of Korea and kind of shaking both their hands 
is a very powerful political statement. And I don't know if it's appropriate either. Mm -hmm. I wasn't crazy about that either. And how, when we've talked about historically, and I, and you know what happens when I bring up Avery Brundage, but he became very involved in the whole creating one German team in this in the sixties oh, and seventies. Right. You know, East Germany and West Germany have to compete together, and he's forcing this shotgun marriage that nobody involved actually wants, and yet he's the same guy very fast to say politics don't belong in sport. Yep. Yeah, you absolutely cannot have it both ways. But I don't know which way they want to go or which way is – and at different times in history, one stance is more appropriate than the other. It's a constantly swinging pendulum. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the IOC is constantly on the wrong side of that <laughs> pendulum. They're always fighting the last war in a way. Yeah. And I don't know how to get them more up to speed. I don't know. Let's take a look back in time and see some Can of these Olympic say, protests. You, yeah. you pulled a lot of this together, and some of these were a huge surprise to me. I know. So this was really interesting that the history of protests at the Olympics goes way before 1968. Yeah, I was really, really surprised at some of these. So the first protest was in 1906, which was these intermediate games that they had between 1904 St. Louis and London 1908. I wonder, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about the intermediate games because they yeah, aren't really counted in the real. Right. They were delisted. Yeah. So we have to look into that. But but it was one of the, I'm sure I'm not surprised, like after the debacle that was the St. Louis games, that people wouldn't try to get another one in Athens pretty quickly. And it was also the 10th anniversary games. Right. Of the 1896 revival. So I had never heard of this. So this was Peter O'Connor who competed for Great Britain, but he was Irish and he wanted to compete for Ireland, but they wouldn't let him. Right, because we're still in the time of home rule, the the battle of home rule in Ireland to be independent. So uh, United Kingdom was not having that. And so he had to compete under the British flag. So he competed in long jump and he took silver. And, th and this is even controversial because he had a, a jump that was would have won him the gold but it was uh, declared a foul. Peter said it was bias from the English and American judges. And uh, when he got his medal, they raised the British flag. So during the medal ceremony, Peter shimmied up the flagpole and waved the flag of Ireland instead. And then the other Irish athlete, I guess, was like standing guard at the base of the flagpole. I mean, this must have been just such a spectacle. And yeah, but he wasn't punished. No, and it was it was interesting because then he and his buddy won the gold and the silver and the triple jump. So they asked for the Irish flags to be raised for them. Nope. And then Not so allowed. they so uh, O'Connor paraded around the stadium instead with with one in the hand. Pretty interesting. That's uh, an article from Salon from. Uh, Jessica Phelan, who collected a lot of these. And so that that was really, really interesting. So uh, by 1908 London, Ireland was still not independent. And so most of the Irish athletes refused to attend. So they did their own boycott of the UK. Because they refused to compete mm -hmm. 
in the UK under the UK flag when they did not consider themselves British. Yes. So that was very interesting. Then apparently there was going to be a protest in Berlin. Well, there was certainly when we read any of the books related to 1936, there was huge discussion of should we boycott yes. Hitler's Olympics. Right. And, and even in Games of Deception, the one basketball team that boycotted the U.S. tournament because they didn't want to go. Right. But some athletes started receiving letters concerned about the Nazi uh, brutality. And one of those were supposed to go to Jesse Owens. And this was from a person named J.M. Lorraine of Britain. And he encouraged Jesse Owens to do a podium protest. Right, to refuse to accept the medal from any member of the Nazi party. Yes. So to stand on the podium but not actually accept the medal unless it was presented, I guess, by not Nazi officials. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that Jesse Owens never got this letter because the Gestapo intercepted it. Yes, though they were opening all the mail to the, and they described it as non-white participants, which I'm not sure if that's a, an appropriate phrase now. So I use that with caution, but it makes perfect sense. Of course, they were intercepting their mail. Mm -hmm. I'm but, surprised yeah, you... that not every letter was intercepted by the Gestapo and read, regardless of who the recipient was. Avery Brundage got his mail. I'm sure I'm sure he did. You know, you you wonder how apoplectic Avery Brundage would be right now. I think if he wasn't already dead, this whole idea of podium protests would kill him. It probably. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but then the big issue that caused a lot of protest was the apartheid government of South Africa. So this is where the IOC actually did something and uninvited South Africa to the Olympics for a long time. The IOC told South Africa it had until August 1964 to make a public declaration, declaration uh, renouncing racial discrimination in sport. They didn't, so they got banned in Tokyo and didn't come back until 1992. That's right. In Barcelona. Yeah, that's right. And even the IOC did this eventually, but the first calls for South Africa to be banned was 1956. So it took three Olympiads for them to actually impose this ban. Wow. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty something. And, but one of the reasons that the ban, the ban was maintained was that other African countries threatened to boycott, most notably in 76, because... 28 of them did boycott since New Zealand was at the 1976 games and they had also played South Africa in rugby in a non-Olympic event. But the these African countries did not appreciate the fact that New Zealand recognized South Africa. In sport. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that was a strange boycott to me. It happened was, so late. I was so confused about that because we've, we've read about that in the what well, we've done a bunch about Montreal, but also in the lead up to the 80 boycott. And we've talked to Michael Warren about how big rugby is in New Zealand and the All Blacks. And so the All Blacks toured South Africa mm -hmm. and played several of the clubs. And that's what the African 
countries were protesting that then New Zealand was allowed to compete in 76 because I just didn't see the connection. I think they wanted to protest any acceptance of apartheid. So this was seen as an acceptance. Therefore, you shouldn't be able to compete on any international stage in anything. So, and and I think this is a harder boy, this is a harder boycott to understand just because it happened right before the games. I mean, there were athletes in Montreal and then they were told, Oh, you're not competing now because we've boycotted. And they were just like, what, what do I do now? Right. Do I have a plane ticket home? Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's an interesting, it's an interesting boycott and it's interesting that that lasted so long. Right, that South Africa was not allowed to compete basically until apartheid was dismantled. Never mind that they allowed blacks to compete in sport. But really, the whole system was was coming apart by the early 90s, and that's when they were allowed back in. Yeah. Again, on the list, putting it on the list, because that's a big topic to talk about. Then, of course, after the South Africa ban, you have the 1968 protest, which I think is seems to be the poster child of... Quite literally. Yes. The picture of John Carlos and Tommy Smith standing on the podium for the 200 meter dash medal ceremony and the black gloves and the raised fists is the picture that whenever we talk about protests in sport, that's the photograph that that comes up. And it's analogous to today's situation because what they were specifically protesting was racial injustice. Right. And and again, at that time, there was just a lot of rioting, a lot, a lot of stuff going on within America that uh, there was a lot of helplessness, I think, in that same feeling like that we are feeling today. I feel pretty helpless. And right. the interesting thing is that that's not the only protest from 1968. I had not even heard of this, which surprised me. Right, gymnastics. Yeah. Gymnastics, you, you know, the, the, the uprising in Czechoslovakia, you know, I'm very uh, interested in the, in the uprising in Hungary from the previous uh, episodes. I'm going to make you pronounce this woman's name because it's... Okay. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. It, Vera Czeslavska, I believe. Was a Czech gymnast and she had to escape Czechoslovakia because uh, the Soviets were searching for her because she was an anti-Soviet activist. And apparently she continued to train by practicing her bar routine on trees. Yeah, she was in the woods. And showed up to Mexico City, won a medal, tied for gold with a Russian gymnast. And when the Soviet anthem played, she very markedly bowed her head. Yeah, would not acknowledge the Soviet flag. Yeah. And she lost her career because, because of it. She never was allowed out of Czechoslovakia again. Right, right. There was a, there's a, an article in Time magazine. Yeah, she worked as a cleaner and was barred from coaching. Ugh. So only after the, the Iron Curtain fell and communism was also dismantled, then she could go back into the gymnastics world. Unbelievable. And 68 is analogous in some ways to, or I should say, 68 is analogous to today in that it's not a localized issue. 
And then in 68, you have the Czech uprising. You have the assassination of Martin Luther King. You have uh, riots in Mexico City itself right before the Olympics. Yes. It's this widespread unrest that's sort of popping up in these different places. And we're seeing that again now. We have the protests and, and things going on in the United States, but it's spreading. Mm-hmm. There have been and protests in other cities around the world. Right. So it's almost surprising in a way that there were only those two protests in 68. Right. At, at the games themselves. Yes. Right. That the games were quite quiet in many ways, given what was happening in the rest of the world. I mean, French students were rioting and city, literally cities in the United States were burning. And yet let's have this sports festival that's pretty violence free. In the actual two weeks of the games, before and after, there was a lot of things happening in Mexico City. But it's kind of amazing that there was this little bubble for the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, but that's what they want. I know, they do want their bubble. So um, other boycotts were 1980 and 1984, which were also political. 1980, the U.S. was boycotting the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And 1984, the Soviets repaid the favor by boycotting the L.A. Olympics. Well, this next boycott is a boycott against a specific country, and it was a a competition boycott. So Arash Marismali, he was an Iranian world judo champion, and he withdrew from the tournament so that he would not have to fight somebody from Israel. And this goes along with an Iranian philosophy, I would say, at the time where they didn't recognize Israel as a country, so they would not compete against them. This boycott has supposedly ended last year uh, when Iran reached an agreement with the International Judo Federation to respect the Olympic Charter and its non-discrimination principle. So this was actually, this, this happened in the 2004 Olympics, but... It had been going on for about 40 years. Wow. According to Inside the Games. Oh, so this this goes back to 1979, though. So I, when uh, the Islamic Revolution happened in Iran, and they refused to, to recognize Israel's existence. So it's been a tough thing. There have been athletes who did not want to follow the policy of Iran and wanted to compete, and they have feared for their lives in going back or have chosen not to go back because they did not withdraw from competitions where they potentially could have faced somebody from Israel. Oh, and then 2008, Beijing, you were going to get protests galore. Remember the, I just remember like the protest area that being controversial of where Beijing saying we are having a protest area, but wasn't it like way far away from everything? Yes. Yes. Well, I just remember when Beijing was awarded the games that was hugely controversial. Mm-hmm. And people were talking about, should we boycott because of China's human rights record? And should we even go and compete? It was sort of like the discussion from 36. Right, you know, right. We comp- what is the, the greater statement, going and competing and making some kind of statement or boycotting? And I don't think anyone actually boycotted no, they haven't Beijing. had a, yeah, they haven't had a major boycott. So everybody went and yet there was no huge discussion about human rights in China. 
Not really. I mean, there were a lot of things to protest because people wanted to protest migrant labor, how China supported the Sudanese regime. But the big one where they actually did something was uh, the Free Tibet initiative. And that kind of targeted the torch relay. And there were a bunch of times where they had to, uh, officials had to relay the torch because the flame got snuffed out. Right. And that they would be in all the camera shots. Yeah. You know, they would flood the sidewalk with the Tibetan flag and signs so that they would get in the camera shot, which I thought was very not clever. It's kind of a basic protest, you know, get the camera shot. But it was so well done. They would sort of jump in when the camera was running and then just hightail it away for their own safety. So it was it was very well organized and very targeted. But yeah, they kept extinguishing the torch. And if it wasn't for so serious a cause, you you feel like you could hear the Benny Hill music going on in the background if it wasn't for something so serious. So there's that part of me that just says, oh, stop hearing that music in your head. That's totally inappropriate. (laughs) But sort of trying to find the... Because the ridiculousness of the torch getting extinguished repeatedly was just... oh. Then in Sochi, 2014, Russia has all of these laws that are anti-homosexuals, and that was a big deal for athletes who were out wondering if they would be safe at the Games. And even we had talked with um, a fan, because Nate Bartholomew's sibling, Jamie, we talked with them about going to the Games and feeling safe with who they actually were. But yeah, individual athletes were talking about, should we boycott? You know, should the American team not go? Should individual athletes not go? Which makes the greater statement? And I think this is the one thing I will say on Avery Brundage's behalf. God, this is killing me. But it does enter that slippery slope. Once politics get into sport, which you really can't separate, but once you start making political statements with sport, where do you stop? And where can sport just be sport? Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the athletes in Sochi were really struggling because what is the greater statement of support for the LGBTQ plus community going or not going? And were they being selfish or should they make a statement or, but I've been training for this for my whole life. And I think that's where the athletes really struggle when it comes to these protests and and these statements, do I make a statement? Can I just enjoy my medal, or do I need? Does it need to be something bigger? Right, and this is an interesting time because it it's still in the U.S. It's before the same sex marriage act was passed. Right. So even in the United States, well, even today in the United States, you have a lot of homophobia. But this is pre one more step toward equal rights and. It has to be really tough to make that decision of what do I do? Do I go and be who I am and show people that we're okay just by being who I am? Or do I protest and what 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 does the most good? You know, sort of the Jesse Owen defense, you know, going is going and winning, mm-hmm. proving your point. Right. And then you get into a what does a protest do beyond show a protest? 
Remember the the Occupy Wall Street movement, which right. was heralded, but nothing really happened from that because it's what happens next that you have to you have to actually do something and you have to work and do the hard work. It's very hard work. And protesting does one thing, but are you working with your sport, your NOC, the IOC on making it better in your community, your your area of athleticism. And you only know that, you know, what I was saying before, uh, in defense of the IOC, you only know that looking backward. You only know if you made the right choice with the long sight of history. And we have even argued about what the right choice would have been in 36. Mm -hmm. When we read both Boys in the Boat and Games of Deception, what would have been the right choice? You know, we're what, 80 years later with clear who the villain of that situation was. And yet we can still come down on both sides of boycott versus non-boycott. Right, right, right. So how are these kids in the heat of their competitive careers going to make the right decision? They got to do what's best for them. And I wish the IOC would respect that individual decision more and not be so quick with Rule 50 to come down so hard on them because they're trying to do the right thing. I don't think any athlete goes into the Olympics wanting <laughs> to destroy their careers. And Gwen Berry talked in Sports Illustrated this week about how her protest has hurt her financially. Sponsors pulled out. She's lost so much of her income. And yet she's got to kind of soldier on and keep training and try to make a difference and in her community and try to get, you know, she says sponsors shouldn't just throw money at people. They need to engage the community and, and that kind of thing. We just need to think a lot more before we talk. Not just us. I mean, yeah, well, we do too. <laughs> that's that's for before the show. We we talk about this stuff. <laughs> I know. We really need to think before we talk. So the perfect thing for us to do is to have a podcast. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's just the right avenue for us. But no, I, I mean, really, we need to talk and listen and learn and read and recognize in other people, I think everyone really is doing the best they can. Yes. Are there racists? Of course there are, but I think the great majority of people want to do the right thing. It, it is sitting back and watching and observing and, and looking at your own behavior and figuring out what, how, what you do is affecting others. Right. And we certainly in, in discussing this whole topic, didn't want to be, offensive though i'm sure something we've said has offended someone oh it's you we always you always i offend. know i'm always getting in trouble <laughs> last protest last protest i vaguely once i read this i'm like oh yeah i remember this one rio and this was a uh ethiopian marathoner faisa uh lilisa won a silver medal at rio but as he crossed the finish line, he raised his arms and a cross over his head uh, as a defiant gesture to recognize and be defiant against 
his nation's repressive government. And the New York Times reported that he did not go home after that because he thought he would be jailed or killed or forced to stay in the country. So he stayed in Brazil, and then he went to the United States. He's got a green card here now. But the government apparently said, oh, no, come on back. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> he's like, uh, He didn't quite believe that. No, because he said uh, his brother-in-law has been imprisoned for a year and tortured. His oh. younger brother... Uh, has been beaten and detained by the military. You know, so he had no reason to believe trust. that he would, yes, to trust that. So yeah. I hope he's doing okay here. I mean, not exactly the world's best place to be a person of color these days. But also certainly not in the category of Ethiopia where you're right. where people just disappear. Mm-hmm. Right. Remember those days. Oy. So it's it's interesting. And, and I don't know enough about the Ethiopian government to know what's what's happened since then. Mm-hmm. If this if this gave enough visibility that needed to be seen, needed to, to, to spur some action. Don't know. But that's amazing that an athlete. I mean, what a a brave thing to do when you think it, just a simple gesture like that. Mm-hmm. And he could have been executed by his his government. I mean, it's one thing to get death threats by crazy people, which is horrible enough, but to truly fear that your own government is going to execute you yeah. because you made a gesture at a sporting event. Right. I think that's so hard for us to even think because we have this inherent right that we can speak our minds. It'll be interesting to see what happens next year. It'll be interesting to see how the situation here in America and in the cities around the world where this is spread shapes up over the next year. Well, it won't matter because the aliens are coming next month to attack. Oh, that's right. That's right. It's 2020, you know? <laughs> All right. <laughs> they were ineffective by sending the murder hornets, so now they're going to have to send the mothership. That's, I guess so. I guess so. Well, stay safe, everybody, from all things going on out there. Yes, and uh, keep speaking your mind. Keep uh, sharing your stories. Should we check in on our team? Sure. All right, let's see what's up with Team Keep the Flame Alive. Tikflastan. Oh, well. Welcome to (laughs) Tikflastan. Actually... We have a message from the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant, whom we asked about this a couple weeks ago. How do we say the name of our team's country? Because as if you remember, Team Keep the Flame Alive doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but when you put it in as an acronym, it looks like it could be one of the Stan countries. So we now have our own country of, of our former guests who are the citizens. And the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant has told us how to say it. Greetings, fellow listeners of the Keep the Flame Alive podcast. Tis I, the dulcet tones of one Jason Bryant, Olympic wrestling announcer. I understand there's a question about the pronunciation of the recent country that has been granted IOC status in the form of podcast participation. That is Tukflastan. Took fl- took fl- took fl- 
So, to correctly say this one, we must look at a couple different things. Linguists around the world cringe. I'm going with Shukflustan. Basically drawing inspiration off of the former NHL hockey player Keith Kachuk, which had a TK in his name. So, Shukflustan is how I would say it. Wrestling, on mat one, from Shukflustan, Jill Jarris. And her tag team partner, Allison Brown. Of course, we know there's no tag teams in Olympic wrestling, but we can always keep the hope alive, just like you guys keep the flame alive. Pod.com. Oh my god, that was the best surprise ever. Oh, that was fantastic. It has made me no- do nothing but laugh. If I need a laugh, which I've needed a lot of laughs in the last day. Oh, okay. Well, we'll post that in and of itself on all yes, yes. various and sundry places. <laughs> but, okay, because I'm going to have to listen to that again. So it shook the fun. Oh, wait, no. Shook Flistan. Okay, well, I'll listen. Shook Or we'll just keep playing Jason Bryan's pronunciation of it. (laughs) I'll have to pull that out. I know. Excellent. Okay. All right, let's see what's going on with our Shook Flistanis. Lauren Wilkinson's had a busy couple of weeks. She has picked up a sponsor, OrthoFix Medical, and she got a new dog. Orthofix Medical, which put her neck back together. Yes, exactly. Which was, it's very nice that they're sponsoring her now. So I'm sure that is a huge relief to get some uh, sponsorship and be able to ease up the burden of training. But uh, new puppy. Who's so cute. We have two new dogs on our team. I know. We got babies. We have dogs. This is perfect. (laughs) Our ski jumper, Sarah Hendrickson, was on uh, the show Behind the Gold with a ski historian and uh, Tom Kelly. And you can see that on YouTube. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And then this came just came across the wire. Quebec's provincial government adopted Bill 15. And that is going to create a company called Olympic Park Development and Development Corporation. This supplants the governing structure that owned the Olympic Park in Montreal. And it will allow this new entity to develop and manage and promote and operate all of the facilities there. And then they'll also promote the heritage of the park. So ideally, this will cut a lot of the red tape that they've had to go through in getting stuff that was economically viable for the park. So one of the things that they had to do um, in the tower when Ben and I took the tour with Cedric and uh, he said that uh, there was office space in the tower of the the stadium so a company was going to be in there and that took 18 months to negotiate because they had to talk with the treasury department so now instead of that they'll just be able to talk with the olympic park development and development corporation okay so wait a second we could have an office in the park you could in the tower you could yeah (gasps) And then you could get a condo in the old village. That's right. You could have an Olympic lifestyle. Oh my God! I got to start working on my French. And you, your gym could be the gym. The that and go swimming, swimming in the, the pool. pool. Mm-hmm. And you can eat there because they've got some restaurants. 
little dining establishments. You could do a lot at the Olympic Park now. Okay. Now I'm going to have to, when this quarantine is done, man, I got to do some work in Montreal. There you go. Oh, yeah. But that sounds really good. I think, I mean, when when we talked to Cedric and and uh, since I've been working on uh, reposting our back catalog, I had to listen to a little bit of those episodes and it just reminded me of how hard I think that staff works to make that park viable and that stadium as viable as possible. And they know they have a, a white elephant isn't quite exactly, but they, they know that they got a behemoth on their hands and being able to have, have an entity that allows them to cut through the red tape and become more viable is, is a good thing. Legacy. There you go. Anything else? I'm going to go work on my French now. Okay. <laughs> so you can become a Quebecois. Au revoir. Well, that will wrap it up for this week. Let us know how you're doing. How Whatever your situation is, wherever you are around the world, we'd love to hear how you're doing during this time. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta, and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. What does the most good?